because we care about it so much. I know. Well, it's funny because, so I think this episode, my thoughts are primarily focused on Faramir, mm-hmm. I will say. Um, and then Helm's Deep, I'm like, you know, the more I think about it, and maybe it's just like the mood I'm in right now. There are some things that are lost and some things that are like expanded upon, but overall it's like fine. You know? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not... I, I don't have anything compared to. I'm not mad. I'm just like, oh, a battle scene. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that there are some things... Like, I was trying to think about this, and it probably doesn't make sense to do it like this, but just given the knowledge that um, when Frodo is actually at the Black Gate of Mordor that is when, like, the battle is over by the time he makes it there. So I'm like, damn, he was stuck in the Eminuil and the Dead Marshes forever. That's and it's long. actually And it's actually not that long. Actually, let's just get this part out of the way because I need someone to hear my thoughts about it. For anybody wondering, the timeline of Two Towers is bananas. And we know this because in the appendices of Return of the King, Appendix B, includes said timeline it also includes some good stuff on um all like all of the third age as well as some of the second age which is good info if you're curious about what's supposed to happen in the rings of power show but let's just look at february okay so the fellowship breaks february 26th way back in fellowship of the ring right way way back way back when several episodes ago um, and then, let's see, Mary and Pippin escape from the orcs on February 29th, so three days later. And that's when they meet Treebeard. Okay. Um, and Frodo descends from the Emin Uil and meets Gollum at the same time. Only three days later, okay? Mm-hmm. And then a day later, the Intmoot begins... Aemir and meets Aragorn at the same time that the Entmoot is happening. But we don't find out about those things at the same time. So it's an, it's interesting like to be like, oh, oh, it like confuses me reading it like this. Mm-hmm. Um, March 1st, Frodo begins the passage of the Dead Marshes. You know, Aragorn meets Gandalf the White. Frodo comes to the end of the marshes on the 2nd. Gandalf comes to Edoras and heals Theoden. Um, and then on the third, Theoden retreats to Helm's Deep. Battle of the Hornbird begins on the same day that they get there. Um, Theoden and Gandalf stand out from Helm's Deep for Isengard a day later. Wow. The whole one day battle. Um, Frodo reaches the slag mound on the edge of the desolation of the Baranna. So he's near the Black Gate. At that time. Um, Theoden reaches Isengard at noon on the 5th. And they're talking to Saruman. Um, that is also when Frodo is in sight of the Black Gate. Which we kind of knew based on what was said in the the Black Gate Opens chapter. Um, but it's just like boom, boom, boom. All these things happening at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it cuts to some of the Return of the King dates. 
but it's just crazy like okay so Frodo gets out of the Eamon Mewil at the end of February and then he comes to the end of the marshes why is everything happening so fast but also yeah so like in the time that it takes Frodo to walk all this battle stuff is happening. Amazing. Yeah. It's wild. Like, where's the Faramir stuff? Did you not include it? Oh, so, no, it's here. So, like, Frodo is taken by Faramir at the same time that Aragorn comes to Dunharrow, and that's where you see, like, the muster of the Rohirrim in Return of the King, like, where... Theoden is gathering men to before they ride to Gondor. Okay, okay. So, with that in mind, it's interesting to think about, like, what if... Now, I know I didn't do an intro before we started talking about this, but I'm just going to go for it. Hi, and welcome to <laughs> Tolkien with Friends. We're in it today. We have a lot of thoughts about Faramir and Helmsteep. <laughs> so, um, uh, come along on this bizarre journey. So... I'll, I'll do more of a cover-off of what we're supposed to be talking about, but this is me on a tangent, so welcome to that. Um, <laughs> so if Frodo isn't, like, all of the stuff that really happens with Legolas, Aragorn, like, everybody else besides Frodo and Sam, happens by the time Frodo is at the Black Gate, and, like, several days before he meets Faramir. What if the movie had been structured, like, to really focus on, like, the fur- all of that stuff, and to, like, have the part with Saruman in the Two Towers movie, like, it's supposed- like, it is in the book, and then cut to Frodo, um, you know, and Sam's stuff, and then the cliffhanger is, like, him being taken by Faramir. Then it kind of would have lined up actually with the events of Return of the King. Mm-hmm. From what we've seen of Peter Jackson's directing style, he kind of likes to leave off on a on a big bang. Just for thought experiment's sake. So we have the two towers. It can be pretty similar, but then we stay with Mary and Pippin. Legolas and Gimli for a longer period. So from maybe the passions of the Dead Marshes and then we just stay with them. You know? Like we do some flipping back and forth and begin mm-hmm. then we stay with them. And we get to the scene with Saruman like after Helm's Deep. Obviously Helm's Deep would have to be a little bit different. And granted, like as we we all should know by this point, like, there weren't actually that few people at Helm's Deep. Like, it was all exaggerated, like, insane amount of orcs. It's just, like, everything's insane <laughs> by Peter's version, which I get. And we would but we would have to probably be closer to the book in terms of to get through it in this way. Mm. Um, but, so we get to, we have, maybe that's, like, our climax of the movie still. But then we can still maybe have... But you know how in a climax you can still have stuff afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we would have the stuff with Saruman and Isengard. And that's 
So then we get to see more of Saruman because I think we all deserve more Christopher Lee in our lives. Every single person does. Every single person. <laughs> Cal agrees. He does. He's very passionate about Christopher Lee and his portrayal of Saruman. And you know what? We can all get behind that. Right? So then cut to uh, Frodo deciding to not... And maybe, like, you have Frodo deciding around the time of Helm's Deep or something that he isn't going to actually go into the Black Gate. Great. Whew. Right? And then he's traveling. And then he runs into Faramir. And we're not sure if he's good or bad yet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then we could have in The Return of the King being like, okay, what's going on there? And Faramir does give them kind of a scare, which we'll talk about. But then it turns out he's a good guy. And then we don't have to ruin his character. Mm-hmm. Oh, you feel like his character is ruined? Well, let's get into it. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, in today's episode, sorry for the tangent. Hope you were here for it. If not, um, oops. So, <laughs> um, in this episode, we are talking about finishing the Two Towers, the movie. Uh, because it's really only Helm's most of the chapter of Helm's Deep chapters window on the west and the Forbidden Pool, all the stuff in Athelion with Faramir, and then like a millisecond of the road to Isengard and Journey to the Crossroads. But we'll cover those more fully next time. Um, so for the stuff about Faramir, I think if you've talk to any book fans for any length of time that's probably one of the first things they will bring up um it's one of the first videos i ever made on tiktok was about like how i would fix faramir stuff with just one line um on tiktok and that was like the first one that got like a bunch of comments because everyone was like i knew what you were going to say like i totally agree it's it's not like a controversial stance to dislike faramir's treatment in the movie wow um so in the movie Faramir scoops Frodo and Sam up, barely talks to them, right? He'd set to ask if they're spies. Then again, when Gollum shows up, he wakes Frodo up. That's accurate, but they cut out a lot of dialogue in between. Um, And while the series of events isn't wrong, like a ton of the dialogue is cut. And I get it, right? It's a movie. We're moving at a different pace. But... Instead of doing like what they do with Gandalf, where it's just like he's saying the same lines but fewer of them, or um, just leaving things out entirely, like they maybe do with some other characters, but keeping, you know, other things, whatever they, to me, they they basically take things that he does say, and then they twist it to give him a different behavior. So, for example, in the extended edition, they added the scene. This is background until we get to the part where they change Faramir, but I need this. Um, so, in the extended edition, there is a scene after a victory in Osgiliath. It's a flashback with Boromir and Denethor, so Faramir's brother mm-hmm. and his dad. And Denethor pulls Boromir aside and tells um, Boromir that Elrond is calling a council um, to to Rivendell, which uh, as we've said in previous episodes, it was more of like a lucky 
happenstance, like, you know, I say called to me, not because I called you, but because like some higher purpose has kind of called you all here at the same time. Right. Um, And Denother says he has guessed it is about the one ring. Like he thinks that the one ring has been found. This whole scene is bonkers, but like this line sends me over the edge. It's just no, no way could he have known that. Everyone of like Denethor's stance, you know, and similar to Saruman, believed that it has, or had believed that it had like fallen down the into the sea or like lost in the Anduin at some time. Nobody thinks that this ring is findable. Mm-hmm. Like that is why it is so like, oh my gosh, it's here, you know. Um, so I just like, even, and even though he does have like the Palantir, one of the seeing stones, which we'll definitely talk about later about why Denethor is kind of a jerk is because he's been driven mad by Sauron through the Palantir. Um, Sauron would not have known. That's the whole point, right? He couldn't have given him that information. Where is he getting that from? It's bananas. It's a bananas line that they threw in there, and I hate it. Um, but well, anyway. they took it back out, so yeah, uh, they they sure did. If you've only seen the theatrical versions, maybe maybe that's all right. Um, so when later, but I mentioned this because later when Faramir is questioning Gollum in the movie, which is overly cruel, by the way, uh, particularly compared to the books, like he's not like there's people like kicking Gollum and stuff. That's not that's not how it goes down but he's questioning Gollum they make it out like Faramir guesses that Gollum's precious is the one ring you know he says they stole it from us he says they stole what from you my precious um and then they cut from that to him immediately going to Frodo saying so this is the answer to all the riddles you know and so here's the full quote of that from the book So this is the answer to all the riddles. And then a cut line, the one ring that was thought to have perished from the world and Boromir tried to take it by force and you escaped and ran all the way to me. And then back to what's in the movie. And here in the wild, I have you two halflings and a host of men at my call cut line and the ring of rings, a pretty stroke of fortune, a chance for Faramir captain of Gondor to show his quality. Now, they use this quote to make it out like Faramir will take the ring to Gondor before ultimately changing his mind by the end of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. But I love this scene in the book because it is not Gollum who reveals the purpose of the quest to Faramir. Do you want to guess how what actually happens? Like, who actually slips up in that moment? Sam? Yeah. my poor man my poor baby Sam so Sam as we know has only Frodo's best interest at heart and he will protect this boy this man for all time right he'll do whatever he can to protect Frodo and he is suspicious of Faramir but Faramir there's so much dialogue that's cut from him um, that really reveals his true nature. At one point, Sam tells him that he, or Frodo, somebody says that he reminds him of Gandalf. Like, Faramir reminds them of Gandalf. Okay. And, 
you know, he, and Frodo perceives that he is, you know, wiser than his brother Boromir. Um, so there's all this stuff that they talk about, you know, Faramir questions them, really just trying to figure out like what their deal is, because normally the rule is to kill somebody on site that they find Nathalian that's a stranger to them. But he doesn't, because they're like, what? There's, I mean, they don't even know what Hobbit is, you know? So, but Faramir being a wise person and a learned person, he decides to get to the bottom of it first, right? Mm -hmm. So, when Sam is listening to him talk and he, you know, Faramir kind of gives like a history of elves and men to them, particularly as it relates to Faramir's background, um, Sam hears Faramir refer to the elves with reverence and that earns Sam's respect and quiets his suspicions. So Sam is kind of feeling good about their where things are with them right now. Um, you know, for example, Faramir is one of the only people in the fellowship that the fellowship meets after they're broken, you know, along the road that doesn't freak out about the fact that they've met Galadriel. He's like, wow, that's really awesome for you. Rather than like, oh my gosh, like she's a witch. Yeah. Like a sorceress and, you know, not to be trusted. Faramir does not react like that. Um, and he even, he, you know, goes into more detail about meeting her and describes her to Faramir. And Faramir says, you know, she must be lovely indeed, but, uh, you know, per- and calls her perilously fair. And Sam is like, mm, I wouldn't say perilous. He's like, uh, people take their peril with them into Lorien and find it there because they've brought it. And he... As I think we, you probably remember when we were talking about this scene in the book, is that we talk about who was bringing the evil to Lorien, and it was more, it was Boromir, really. And this is brought up again. He accidentally, Sam says, like, now Bor, he starts to say Boromir's name, and Faramir's like, Boromir? Like, what were you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, like, just say it. So he, um, he goes on. And ends with, and it's my opinion that in Lorien, he, meaning Boromir, first saw clearly what I guessed sooner, what he wanted. From the moment he first saw it, he wanted the enemy's ring. And then it's just like, Sam goes red in the face. Frodo is like, Sam? Like, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. Uh, and Sam flips out and he realizes he's put his foot in his mouth and he tells Faramir he's like oh you've got me all like messed up talking about elves and like acting so kind and trustworthy you know he's like he's like okay now's your chance to show your quality it's not a sassy remark from Denethor it's Sam literally saying be the man you have presented yourself to be like prove yourself right you know like are you, like, have your actions back up your words kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we have that quote from Faramir, the answer to all the riddles. And this moment, and both Sam and Frodo, after he says this, are, like, grabbing at their sword hilts. They're like, oh, shit, what's about to happen? But this is Tolkien pulling another strider, as in making our hero act super sus for no reason. Like, when we first met Aragorn and Bree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same thing um it's 
Faramir, like, I don't know why our our main guys, like, the best of the best, got to pull these sus moments, but they do. Um, I think it's Tolkien building some kind of suspense, but sure. basically Faramir passes the test where his brother failed. Um, and I love this exchange because it really shows, like, the sweetness of Sam and how he is, re- con- you know, really following his heart, like, no matter what like we're on the borders of Mordor right like your senses should be up like you should be so suspicious of everybody you know um but Faramir you know reassures him and says you know your heart is shrewd as well as faithful and saw clearer than your eyes you know trying to say like and he says something along the lines of you know if you have stumbled think it, it's fated to be so because you know I I'm gonna stick to my word you know like what I said earlier because earlier he had said something along the lines of um if I had found this thing before he even knew what it was he guessed near to the mark basically that Rhoda was carrying something and he had said that he would not take this thing if it lay by the highway um and he t- you know, takes that seriously. He's like, you know, to me, that is a vow and I won't, you know, go against that. I meant it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it does make you wonder, I'm sure when you, people read that for the first time, I don't know. I mean, I know I thought it like, what if Faramir had gone to Rivendell because he was the one that originally had the dream that Boromir had as well that led them to want to go to Rivendell in the first place, you know, about like seek the sword that was broken, the stuff about the halfling and the silver's bane. Um, but that is a thought experiment that I have run. And I think it did have to be Boromir because the fellowship did have to break. And he was a big cause of the, yeah, the breakage. Exactly. And it's like, it sucks because I think in this this is really the point where we get like we traveled with Boromir literally as a reader, but I don't think we really got to know him per se. Um, But this is a point where Faramir really takes time to explain his brother to Frodo and doesn't blame him for not parting friends with Boromir because he knows like who Boromir is and how he's, you know, proud man. He, honors valor and would have done anything to save the city you know like it's it's all he loves his brother but you can see like where they're different um and you know i just think that frodo needed to find faramir at this point anyway like he it's great to that he found an ally so close to mordor because like not to mention like Faramir gives him food and stuff for them to pack and, you know, helps replenish their stores mm-hmm. um, and is, a, you know, gives them a few days to rest and, and all of this and gives him advice. You know, it's, it's a good moment for Frodo and Sam, I think. Um, and we'll see, you know, Faramir get to communicate this later to Gandalf when Gandalf and Pippin go to Minas Tirith. Mm-hmm. So Faramir needed to be there, but so, you know, I, I think that can kind of show you some of the things that they do to change Faramir. Um, 
like the whole going to Osgiliath thing in the movie, it just doesn't happen because Faramir never entertains the idea of using the ring for Gondor. Um, but for the movie's sake, uh, I wanted to get your take, Anna, as someone who's really only seen the movies and is just now hearing me explain this for the first time, you know, on how Faramir is presented. So in the appendices for the movies, um, one of the writers, Philippa Boyens, talks about how they felt that they basically needed to change Faramir because they have spent all this time trying to demonstrate how irresistible the ring is um, and that it... And, you know, essentially implying that it wouldn't have been believable to have Faramir come along um, and, you know, say, I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway, which he does say, but um, which admittedly he says before he knows about the ring. But do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think that it's true for most audiences that Faram like the Frodo needed to come across somebody that, you know, would have you know, we see more people kind of, like, falling for the lore of the ring? Um, as a plot device, I, you know, can see why it would be helpful for them to keep pushing, like, hey, it's so irresistible, this task that they're doing is so difficult, look at all this peril that they're going through. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I get that. It, it is, it is a shocker for me to hear that people don't like Faramir. Like, I, I, well, like it's not so much that they and... don't like him, but that they feel like he was ch the change was too significant. Okay, because and you know I'm just thinking of like into towers. Yeah, he's a little sus. He last minute is like just kidding. I'm not gonna you know mess with you, but you feel so bad for him in Return of the King. Yeah. And Pippin has this amazing song when he's like riding off to die. And I'm like, I stand Faramir, you know, he's yeah. so much better than his brother and he gets treated like shit by his dad. And, you know, he had one minor slip up, but didn't go all the way, you know, mess up yeah. the ring. So I'm like, we, yeah, we I think that's the thing is that like, after they do this whole thing, like taking him to us, Gilead and like, Frodo hands himself on a silver platter to the Nazgul, but like none of that happens, right? Because if it had, Frodo would have, there's no, I mean, it would have been over, you know? Um, but they, they take him to Osgiliath in the movies, and then it isn't, it, I just feel like there's so much cognitive dissonance around that. Like, it's Sam's speech at the end, you know, about like, the folks in those stories had chances of turning back, only they didn't. And that's actually taken from a speech that Sam, or like a conversation that Sam and Frodo have later on the stairs of Sakira Thungol. Um, but that's adapted. And it is a beautiful writing. It is a beautiful speech that Sam gives. But then Faramir hears that and says to Frodo, I think we understand each other better now. And he does say that in the book, but on, at a different moment after actually listening to Frodo. So it's just, it's weird the way that they did that to me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think that the, the trouble that people have with movie Faramir is just knowing that 
Faramir doesn't do any of those things. Um, he doesn't have a moment with the ring. And he also doesn't ever see it, you know? Like, they have him, like, seeing yeah. it. I don't know. Um, Frodo is always pulling out this ring in the movie. And it's like, not no. flash at all. <laughs> He's not doing that either. Um, so it's just, like, I think it's... Uh, because after that, it, like, basically corrects back to how Faramir really does act more or less and so it's like uh I don't know it just feels like uh thrown in there to me like I don't really feel like it is showing Faramir growing in any way he just seems to change his mind um I don't know it doesn't it doesn't hit for me Mm -hmm. understood but I don't know I don't know how you felt about that scene um or, like, just the whole interaction with Faramir, like, how it played out in the movies. Yeah, I, I mean, in, since I, until today, uh, found out that it was much different, I was pretty like, oh, okay, you know, this this, this tracks, they're just running into another obstacle. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, it, and I get it, like, everyone else in the movie is, like, running into an obstacle, right? Like, mm-hmm. Mary and Pippin are taking down Isengard with Treebeard, Helm Steve with the rest of the crew and then Frodo and Sam are you know just supposed to be having a good time with Faramir but what's funny is that like knowing the timeline now that that actually doesn't their obstacle was more or less the getting into Mordor and realizing they can't there's no way to sneak in through the front gate you know yeah. um, obviously not as maybe theatrical as Helm's Deeper, that's, you know, taking out Isengard. Um, so they so they give this whole Osculia battle scene to Frodo and Sam to try to survive. I but I also, but I just hate that the Nazgul shows up and Frodo's just like, yeah, cool. Take and me. how Sam runs his little ass up those stairs and saves him last minute. I'm just like, if the Nazgul was there... Like, they know, they've met Frodo before. This isn't news to them. They've been pursuing a halfling. The fact that they can run into a Nazgul and then escape and not see a Nazgul again until they're in Minas Morgul is crazy to me. It's just like, no, they would have been like, screw this, we're chasing the halfling again. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to say, but yeah. you have, you have a lot to say. So. I know, but <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, it just, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't sit right, but good to know. But yeah, I, I try, I try to, I've been trying like all week to give an excuse for it, but I, now I'm here talking to yeah. you about it. I can't do it. Don't. You just I don't like it. And that makes, just, it makes sense. You, you said some valid things. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that validation. Because, you know, there are so many good things in these, but it's just one of those departures that I can't sit with. I can't, I can't do it. Um, one thing that I, a couple of things related to when Far- they're leaving Faramir, obviously in the movie they're doing it in Osgiliath instead of in 
Thilian at Kenneth Anun, you know, like their little hideaway. Um, but Faramir does dwell on the fact that Gollum is taking them to Kiddeth Ungol. He doesn't like it. He's very, and Gollum doesn't want to tell him that that's where he's taking them, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Gollum refuses to answer Faramir's question. Frodo's the one that has to tell them the plan. And Faramir is like, is Kiddeth Ungol its name? And at first, uh, Gollum says no. And then it says, and then he squealed as if something had stabbed him. Yes, yes, we heard the name once, but what does the name matter to us? And I feel like that is probably one of the only like tangible instances of the ring kind of holding Gollum to his promise to like serve Frodo. Um, I don't know why, but it's interesting to me that he can't seem to lie about it. Okay. I don't know. It's it's interesting that that is called out that, and then he squealed as if something yeah. had stabbed him. That just stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he, he does do that. And in the movie, like, Faramir has him in a chokehold, which Faramir isn't like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that doesn't, it's not, he just asks him. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that is interesting to me, I don't, I tried to explain this to Josh, but I don't think he really cared. But um, there's a point where, uh, similar to in the movie, Faramir's like, hey, your little creepy friend is in our pool, and that is, like, you cannot show up to our hideaway. You're supposed to, you, you, I'm supposed to kill him. Should I do it? And Frodo is like, no, don't do it. And one of the reasons that, so he, we know at this point that Faramir knows Gandalf. And that he learned a little bit from him while he was making his many visits to uh, Minas Tirith. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and we also learned that Denethor doesn't really care for Gandalf, but Faramir is a fan. So that tells you also anything about Faramir. Um, but Frodo tells him, no, Gandalf, he's like, I don't know clearly why, but Gandalf would not want you to kill Gollum. He even told the elves not to kill him when they had him captured. Mm-hmm. So um, there's that that happens. And then later when he's like, dude, don't go to Kiddeth Uncle. Even like, he's like, we don't go that way. Obviously, that's like hella Sauron territory. Like the Witch King lives there. They're near there at Minas Morgul. Um, and but when you talk to older people that do know more about, they like refuse to speak of it. Um, and in the movie, he says a dark terror lives there, which we find out later is Shelob. Um, so, but at that point, Faramir kind of pulls a Frodo and it's like Gandalf, he's like, I don't believe Gandalf would have wanted to go this way. And Frodo's like, all right, well, Gandalf isn't here and I have to take the paths that I can, as such that I can find. And it's like, Okay, so the Gandalf reason works. Like, you're allowed to use Gandalf to back up your arguments, but Faramir is not. Interesting, Frodo. (laughs) Oh, no. I just thought that was funny. Because it's like, what? I mean, obviously, later we learn that, like, there really is no other way they could have gone. But uh, I I just thought that was funny. Uh, Sassy. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. And, you know, Faramir doesn't question him on that at all, but uh, I would have been like, really? 
okay, so you get to use Gandalf, but I do not. Rude. No. <laughs> um, so that is the part with Faramir. You know, they part friends, and Faramir essentially... Faramir doesn't like Gollum. He's like, this is a, a wicked creature. And, you know, Gollum, uh, Frodo's like, well, not wholly wicked. And he's like, well, maybe not wholly wicked, but I can tell that this guy has killed before. So, Bad like, news bears. Exactly. So what he does is he tells Frodo that he has leave um, and he's under Faramir's protection for a year and a day. Um, and then if he presents himself to Denethor within that time, you know, to like extend his, you know, ability to walk around Asselene as much as he wants. And also extends that whoever walks with Frodo is under Frodo's, is under the same protection. So Gollum is only safe as long as he's with Frodo. He's like, if I ever see you again, alone, like, you're done. Um, official. Yeah, it is. It's very like... You know, Faramir <laughs> captain talking at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that is, you know, they where they leave Faramir and then they're headed towards the crossroads, which is the point where the road leading to Mordor, you can either go south to the ocean, you can go north to the Black Gate, which, you know, we've been there, done that, we don't need to go that way. You can go west towards Osgiliath or east to the Morgul Vale and Minas Morgul. And so that's where they're headed next time. Okay. So I guess that means that we should talk about Helm's Deep. So overall, I mean, really, it's like fine. Yeah. Uh, I know that a lot of people love Helm's Deep. And I think the best part about Helm's Deep is really the end. Um there's a whole conversation with Aragorn and Theoden in the movie that is um, flipped around, but I think it works really beautifully of, you know, like, you know, what would, you know, ride out and meet them for death and glory for Gondor. And they're like, yes. And then they, they go out on their horses and they um, go down the ramp. And that's when Gandalf shows up. I think that all feels really good and pretty comparable to the, to the book, even and even more beautiful, I think, in, in the movie, um, with him showing up with Amir. Fun fact that I know that is more than a fun fact. Like if sometimes I just think like if Nubeta were here, he would want to mention this. Mm-hmm. Um, that Amir was at in the book, he's actually at Helm's Deep the whole time. And that's who Aragorn says, like, now is the hour we will draw swords together instead of Theoden saying it to Aragorn. It's a great line. I'm glad they kept it. But he says it's Amir at one point, um, but because they're fighting together the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it's actually Erkenbrand, who is the leader of the Westfold, who, you know, where was Gondor when the Westfold fell? That uh, Theoden never questions Gondor on that. Everyone was busy when the Westfold fell. Okay. Um <laughs> so Erkenbrand is who um his forces were scattered when they were attacked by Isengard and Gandalf go, when Gandalf learns that he goes to get them. And that's who kind of helps um, seal the deal at the end there, along with the help of the trees. They, they do help. Um, And the trees also help clean up 
after the fact, which is nice. Aww. Um, so that feels good. The whole scene with, um, you know, when, again, we kind of see Gimli being turned into a bit of comic relief, you know, with, like, I cannot jump the distance. You'll have to toss me. Yeah. Don't tell the elf. Like, that whole thing. Um, I really do love how that plays out in the book because Gimli is does come in and have fun there, but it's a little different. So it's Aemir and Aragorn doing uh, a similar thing. They, like, come out this side door. You know how they have all those orcs that are carrying these, like, battering rams and they have shields, yeah. like, protecting them? So they can't come at the side door because it's a really narrow way, which is obviously on purpose, so that, so that they can come out and kind of, like, fight them. Um, and they, yeah, so here it is. So they, Amer and Aragorn jump out there, they're fighting the orcs, and they feel like they've done a good job, I'm paraphrasing, uh, and then they turn back to be like, okay, we gotta go fix the door now, because it's all messed up, and they turn to leave, and then some of the orcs had been pretending to be dead, so... The orcs trip Amir, and then out of nowhere jumps Gimli. It says, but a small dark figure that none had observed sprang out of the shadows and gave a hoarse shout. Baruch Kazad, Kazad Aymenu. An axe swung and swept back. Two orcs fell headless. The rest fled. And so that was how Amir and Aragorn were able to get out of that situation. And Amir was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know you were there. And, he's, and Gimli says, I followed you to shake off sleep. But I looked on the hillmen, and they seemed over large for me. So I sat beside a stone to see your sword play. Just enjoying the show. And then he jumped in to help out at the end, which I thought was fun. Goofy boy. I know it. Um, but I do like that those are, like, that's the reason that gets him worked up to, to speak Dwarvish, not to say something rude to Halbeer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, another thing that we kind of lose is, um, you know how in Fangorn, Gimli's feeling kind of anxious, he doesn't really like the vibe, and Legolas says, you know, like, I could have been happy here, like, this is a cool place, and Gimli says, you comfort me? The same thing happens in Helm's Deep with Legolas and Gimli, where Legolas is feeling kind of weird about, you know, being near the mountains and all this rock and wall and cave stuff. And uh -huh. Gimli is talking about how, like, if he had a bunch of his kin there, they could make it into a place that's, like, impenetrable. Like, he loves it. And Legolas repeats the line back to him, like, you comfort, like, dwarves are strange folk, but you comfort me. Like, I'm glad, you know, where you go, I will go kind yeah. of thing. That's sweet. Uh, I know. I think that those parallels are really cute, and we don't get them in the movie. Uh, not to mention uh, Gimli's description, which happens in the next chapter, The Road to Isengard, when they're leaving. But he describes the glittering caves to Legolas and his, because there, there are caves in, behind Helm's Deep that are basically not really used. Like, they store stuff there. Some of the women and children that were in Helm's Deep were hiding there. At one point in the fight, Gimli gets separated from Legolas and Aragorn and and with Aemir, and they have a fight back there, and that's when he's able to see it. 
And then later we'll talk about it next time, but he describes the glittering caves. Um, and I don't know if I can play how to play a clip exactly, but uh, I think I've sent it to you before, but there's a part uh, where John Reese davies who plays Gimli, on the Nerd of the Rings YouTube channel, he reads a part of Gimli's description of the Glittering Caves, and it's just, ugh, chef's kiss. Like, he could have played book Gimli easily, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm still saying, while we have, like, you know, R.I.P. Ian Holm and Christopher Lee, we don't have OG Bilbo or Saruman, but I'm just saying... I would pay money for a audiobook of the OG of the cast reading it. Because that's what I want. That's my dream. That's your dream? I'll put I mean, the word. Yeah. <laughs> you know somebody on? <laughs> know somebody we can contact? Because <laughs> there are so, there are just so many really beautiful lines by Tolkien. And there, um, there, there are some great things like they they change Theoden a little bit in the movies, and I think Bernard Hill delivers everything amazingly. You know, he does such a good job, and you know, like they make it out like it's Aragorn's idea to ride out and meet the orcs, but it, it's Theoden that asks Aragorn to ride out with him. Which, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I get it. Like, movie Aragorn's the idea man. You know, like. Like, I don't begrudge them of changes like that. And everybody delivers them so beautifully. Um, and we'll continue to see that in Return of the King. But I, there, there's so many lines like that, like these descriptive things that they say to each other. Um, and obviously, I would always want Ian McKellen to give me more Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Like Always. Always. Clearly. No question. Yeah. So, but I think the biggest difference with Helm's Deep is like the treatment um, as far as the focus on battle like for Peter it's all about what happens during the battle and so we get like more and bigger fighting scenes you know Mm -hmm. everything from Legolas using a shield like a surfboard to um, the explosion of the wall uh-huh. It's a lot bigger, and the in the book it's like, and I get it. Like in the book, it's like two explosions, one that's smaller, one that's bigger, and um, so they just do one big one in the movie, which I I got it, I got mm-hmm. it, but Tolkien I think tends to speak of combat more in general terms, and then he tends to focus more on the aftermath. You know, and I think that's just like his focus area is not so much on the the sword play and all of that. Where, well, you can clearly tell that he appreciates it in some ways. Um, it's interesting because he says that he is finds himself most similar to Faramir, and Faramir is one that's you know famously quoted to say that you know I do not love the sword for its sharpness um nor you know bright steel let me find it i want to say it exactly because it's a good one i'm sure that there are people like there could be people listening they're like i know exactly what it is and then good for you (laughs) (laughs) no Uh, one is saying that no one is saying that somebody knows exactly what it is 
or myself, said Faramir, I would see the white tree in flower again, and the courts of the kings, and the silver crown return, and Minas Tirith in peace. Minas Arnor again, as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be while we defend our lives against the destroyer of who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, and the city of men, of the men of Numenor, and I would have her loved for her memory, her ancientry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man old and wise. I feel like that is a, a quote that people really go to to show, like, who Faramir is. Hmm. Um, and I and I think that that speaks true to how Tolkien views the war stuff because I more often than not he will focus on the aftermath and kind of give you just like a general idea of how the the battle went. You know, like when you're reading the Helm's Deep chapter, it focuses on these like little moments um, between like Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn, like what they're up to, and then a few sentences here and there about like the orcs coming over the wall or sneaking into the culvert with the stream, but nothing like crazy. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the, the battle scene is very large. Sure. I would say. Um, and it's going to get larger at the battle of the Pelennor fields, but in the movie anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, so, so that's an interesting nuance to think about, right? As far as how Tolkien is dealing with it. One of the things that doesn't end up in the movie related to this is that um, it's not just supposed to be orcs. Obviously, that makes it easier in the movie for it just to be orcs that they're fighting. And do you remember the scene when Saruman gets the the wild men of Dunlin to swear to him mm-hmm. and they like cut the hand like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah um they are also supposed to be there oh. and it's not just orcs and so at the end of the battle all the orcs are dead several of the Dunlin men have surrendered and they're afraid you know and they are basically told like help us clean up this mess that you made swear to never like take up arms against us again um they phrased it like take arms across the fords of the eyes and basically into rohan mm-hmm. um and you can go back home and they're like shook they're they're shocked right because saruman told them that the men of rohan were cruel and burned their captives alive of course so i i think that that is um important you know it's it reminds me a little bit of when sam in the book and faramir in the movie sees the dead um you know warrior from harad and says like would he not rather have stayed home in peace than to you know be off fighting this war and and it's interesting because Faramir even in the the, movie, the book uh, says like a lot of the men of Ithilien, like the rangers of Gondor, refer to the Haradrim as cruel and like cruel men of the south. 
And, and I'm sure like when you're in the middle of a war, you kind of have to other the people a little bit. It's a tactic commonly used. Yeah. Well, you know, and also to like live with yourself Mm -hmm. a little bit of taking the life of other people. I would assume I've never done that. Uh, You know, just like mentally, psychologically deal with that. But then you have these little moments of Tolkien pointing out like the humanity of these people that he isn't really like exploring, but saying like, hey, it's not it's not all easy. It's not a lot of black and white as, you know, Sauron would probably even want you to think it is. Absolutely. So, you know, a thing that gets lost in the movies, uh, but I think it probably would have been nice to have that moment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get why it isn't there, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's interesting to think about, like, how I might have edited this together or, or added or taken away. Yes. Like, for example, the elves showing up at Helm's Deep, like, that doesn't happen. Um, but honestly, when you think about it, how would they have even, like, known to be there? So, so like, in the movie, they have Galadriel telepathically talking to Elrond about, like, would you have them stand alone, you know? Uh-huh. And, you know, I guess it just, they just know everything that's happening, apparently. But um, not truly the case. Like, Lorien was dealing with their own problems, and Rivendell's very far away at that point. I mean, you can tell it's Haldir, like, they met him in Lorien, but it... I feel like it's kind of implied that it's a mix of elves from both places. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but I didn't. I didn't think. Just didn't think about it. Yeah. Yeah, but elves show up. They do not. But um, in the books, you can see why. Because so they ride off to. They take Gandalf's advice to ride off to meet Saruman head on and say, "Hey, screw you, buddy. You can't take over our lands." And then it's like they meet one of their own men that was supposed to, that was recently fighting at the Fords of Ice, and they're like, all of Sauron's army is emptied. They're hot on our tail. And then they're like, okay, we're off to Helm's Deep. <laughs> and as they're riding to Helm's Deep, like, the Urukai, they are not that far behind. They can turn around and, like, see them marching. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's like, Oh shit! Like you know, so then you gotta pick up the pace and get there before the Urukai do. So there's like no time in between, you know. But in the movies, they have Aragorn, like obviously because he fall off, fallen off that cliff during like the fake wargs fight, yeah. and he's the one that's like, oh my gosh, there's like ten thousand Urukai headed your way. What are you gonna do? And they also make it out like there's only like a thousand, like three hundred men in Helm's Deep. It's definitely more than that i think a number like a thousand is mentioned at some point but Mm -hmm. um, don't quote me um so yeah so that that's helm's deep um and one thing that's funny that i have never noticed before uh is that you have because you know when normally you read straight through you don't flip back and forth like this but we're doing that so we have the men of Dunland, you know, they call them the wild men of Dunland in the books. And then, but then in the chapter with Frodo and Faramir and Sam, Faramir, when he's giving this account of the men of Middle Earth, he talks about how there are different types of men, similar to how, like, 
you talk about the Eldar elves or the Sindar elves or I don't know. There's a bunch of them uh, mm-hmm. that I'm not very concerned about. Noldor, Sylvan, I don't know. There's a bunch. There's high elves. There's elves of the twilight. You know, they got names upon names to categorize all these elves depending mm-hmm. on where they live or how far they, if they traveled to Valinor or not, all kinds of stuff. Faramir does a similar categorization uh, where he says high men or aka men of the west or Numenorians. So like some of Faramir's ancestry, obviously, definitely Aragorn's ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the middle peoples, so men of the twilight who uh, basically just kind of like have always been Middle Earth people, you know, and the he says the Rohirrim are an example of men of the twilight, and then you have the wild men, aka men of darkness, or the Dunlendings, and so that makes me just think like all of this this naming convention is in relation to elves slash Numenor, so like basically how much you learned from elves or the gods, so mm-hmm. like the Numenorians used to be the closest to the elves and learned a lot and had, um, we, you know, they were even gifted a land of their own from the Valar, from the gods, you know. And then you have the men of the twilight who I'm guessing were more receptive to the teachings of the Numenorians, people that they were able to ally themselves with. And then you have men of darkness who probably were just like, no, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm uh-huh. doing my own thing. I wouldn't necessarily consider it like, evil you know what i mean yeah in that sense just um less enlightened maybe um but i had never noticed that before you know like specifically calling them wild men i just thought it was rude but i'm like oh you're thinking of it in terms of like their knowledge base i guess in comparison to your own i mean obviously it's a little Maybe a little ethnocentric, but maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but uh, never really noticed that before. Fascinating. So, thought I would throw it out there. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's really where we leave off. Like in the movies, we see, um, you know, the basically just the battle is over, and Gandalf is saying like. The battle for Helm's Deep is over. The battle for Middle Earth is about to begin. Um, Frodo, Sam, and Gollum are back on track as far as they're headed. They're going to head back towards Mordor now. Um, headed towards Minas Morgul is their next step uh, up the stairs. And <laughs> Merry and Pippin are, you know, enjoying the spoils of victory uh and they are stormworm and i don't think we know about the storm thing in the book yet but i think that's fine to give mary pippin a little chill moment and -hmm. actually in the book we haven't seen mary and pippin go that far yet in the book the tree beard chapter ends with the ents marching to war and then it we don't really know more until we see them again like in person like there's a like the whole release the river part, which I love. I love the ants taking over Isengard. It's a nice scene. It's so good. Like 
it just look I just love like Saruman panicking like he's like what is happening and even the orcs like trying to chop up the trees or set them on fire and they're able to like get around all of those shenanigans releasing the river so in the release the river moment happens in the book when they're on the way to Isengard they notice that the riverbed is empty and they're like well, what kind of the fuck yeah exactly like what is Saruman up to and then at one point when they're like at night I think it happens the you know the waters rush back in and they're like okay what the heck is going on um and they notice steam rising from Isengard so a lot of that happens in the background and then we'll probably hear about it like uh secondhand you know from Merry and Pippin but I do love seeing it in the movie I think mm-hmm. it's beautifully done nice it is it's a very interesting part mm-hmm. and I think it's um it's nice it's nice for Mary and Pippin um one thing that I will say about like the whole Entmoot part like them in the movie acting like they're not gonna go to war until Pippin tricks Treebeard into seeing Isengard and the damage they've done mm-hmm. You know, give the ants a little credit. They've been around for a long time and they have seen this stuff going down and they, they come to this conclusion on their own. They do they do come to this conclusion. It just takes them like three days to do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it, the way that Treebeard puts it is they go over like all the facts <laughs> and then their, their decision making is fast. It's just that they... It's literally, I feel like they must think of everything like a court. Like, they go through all the facts and events, and then they decide. And I they also have lots of rules. <laughs> yeah. So, but then they decide, and it's funny, because, like, Mary and Pippin aren't actually with them when they decide. Um, they Treebeard comes and, like, picks them up, basically, from, because they were bored, because they don't speak Indish. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, and so he's like the ants are going to war they're like that is great yeah. and so so that's where they're left at the end of the Treebeard chapter so um, it'll be interesting to see how it's described you know after the fact in, in the book yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah so that means that the next chapters we're gonna finish so we started the road to Isengard in this and journey to the crossroads a bit we're gonna see the rest of that next time and then we're also gonna i think just fully flesh out the you know the scene in isengard with the chapters flotsam and jetsam and the voice of saruman sounds good to me okay great so we i'll see you there the rest of you will hear us there next time for four whole chapters that we're gonna cover damn I know. Uh, after I think this is our chunky one of our chunkier uh, chapter episodes, probably since the Tom Bombadil stuff. So, we'll see you there, and uh, thanks for tuning in.